there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Hear this in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Hey everybody, it's good to see you tonight. We're picking up right where we left off in our new series, going through the first part of the book of Revelation. There's probably not a more intriguing and intimidating book of the Bible than the book of Revelation. Uh, We come to it and we are just kind of dropped in the middle and we don't know what's going on. Lots of imagery, lots of visions, lots of prophecy. There's a mixture of genres that are coming all up through the book of Revelation and we don't really know how to make heads or tails of what's going on. But as we came last week and as we saw at the very beginning of the book, we are given a vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And it is through that picture of Jesus, it is going to be referred back to each through seven letters that are written to the churches. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, the same church that the, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, that same church. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church at Smyrna. And so as we looked last week at the church at Ephesus, there was a lot to commend them for, but Jesus came into a little bit of conflict with them. If you remember why, it was because they had forgotten their first love. And as we come to the church at Smyrna tonight, and as we unfold what God has for us, he has written these letters to the seven churches, but it wasn't just specifically for these seven churches. They were reading each other's mail. This was one collection that was getting passed around. And with that number seven being significant, complete, total, all-encompassing, this was for those churches, but by extension, it is for us today. So with the resurrected, glorified Jesus writing these letters to the churches, there is a word for them and there is a word for us. And so when we go through and when we look at these particular letters and we look at the book of Revelation, I want you to think, as we talked about last week, Less apocalypse charts and more encouragement for the heart. It's not so that we can go through and get our calculations and find a date on the calendar where we can put up billboards to say this is when the end of the world will happen. No, but Jesus gave this revelation to John, the Apostle John, on the Isle of Patmos when he was in exile. And he was told to write these things down and to send to the churches, the churches that were enduring great persecution. And all of them were feeling it as the gospel was going out to the ends of the earth in that day and age. But there was no church out of the seven that was probably feeling the persecution more acutely than the church at Smyrna. 
And so let's look at the passage that Cole just read for us, beginning in verse 8. Let's see who's speaking. It's the same one throughout all of the letters. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. At the beginning of each of these letters, John is going back, he is referring to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to refer back to an attribute of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. Last week when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, it was to him who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the lampstands. It was basically an image-loaded an image way for him to be able to say, I'm the one who holds all of the churches and the one who is present and with them. And tonight, when he is referring back to Revelation chapter 1, 17 to 18, you see it on the screen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his hand upon me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. This is the glorious preamble to everything that will come after this. Right here, Jesus is revealing himself, who he is and what he has done. I am the first and in the last. That's who I am and what I have done. I am the one who has died and who has come back to life. He's the one who went first. You see, there are a lot of times in our lives that we can receive great comfort when we talk to someone who has already gone through what we are fast approaching, right? Maybe with like courses and everything, and you, you want to scope out the people that are in your major, right? You want to find the people that have already taken that prop. You want to figure out, okay, I mean, hey, are they like really test heavy or are they do daily assignments, all this, that, or the other, Right, Or maybe as you're trying to figure out a major, you want, to fig- you want to find somebody who has graduated, maybe somebody even that's a senior that's come through a majority of your d- degree program. You want to know, is it possible to be able to make it through? Right? Or maybe it's with a particular surgery that you've got coming up. Like, Andrew, when you had your tonsils out, bro, like, I mean, we were praying for you, and it's a, gnarly as an adult, but like, you know, finding other people to be able to figure out, okay, have you come through this? What was it like? What could I expect? Can you help me to feel some comfort right now? Or maybe it's with some therapy after you've gone through and you had major surgery, right? And you've been recovering and you are just now able to get back to do what you wanted to be able to do. And you want to find somebody who's come through that already to be able to comfort you there in that moment. Or maybe it's an upcoming engagement, like you're progressing, you're wanting to be able to take it to the next level, you're wanting to be more serious, you are pursuing this other person, and so you want to be able to talk to somebody, like, it's a big step, there's a lot of significance, there's a lot of weight behind this moment, how do you do it, what can I think through, this is a lot of commitment, like, what, how do I go through this, how can I be comforted in this moment that I'm in right now, or like me, when, when, before we had Thomas, before we had our first child, it's like, I'm going to be responsible for keeping another tiny human alive. Like, how do I do this? Am I going to be able to do this? I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. Will I ever sleep? I don't know. I'm going to find out. I want to know from someone else who has gone first, who has gone before me, that can tell me what the experience was like and that they can tell me that it's going to be okay. And we can have that same kind of comfort. Not in any of these circumstances that we might or might not have. You might be here and you're in the working world tonight, you're not in school. You don't have to worry about profs or degree programs of study. You're settled in your career and you're on that path. 
It might not be in the Lord's will for you to be able to go over here to be able to be married. You might be gifted the gift of singleness for your life. You might go over here and you will just be a spiritual father or mother to others as you go throughout your life. But there is one thing that we will all experience unless the Lord comes back first, and that is death. And it's not something that's really talked about a lot. I mean, it's, we, it's not something that gets the people going, right? It's not the thing that gets them in the door. It's not the thing that uplifts them. But it's one of those things that when we go to the Scripture, it's something that we almost try to shove down or try to ignore. We try to live as though we are immortal. But the Christian Scriptures answer this most fundamental problem that we have in this world. And it addresses Death. We can have this same comfort. We can look to Jesus and we can see that death didn't conquer him, but rather he conquered death. That Jesus has put death to death. That Jesus himself, when we look upon an open casket or when we see that loved one lowered into the ground and death seems so final, it looks as final as maybe the tomb looked as it was sealed on Good Friday. But just as Jesus was raised so too we who are in Christ will be raised as well. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. For we are convinced of this. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That just as sure as Jesus got up from the grave, so too now we who are in him will also rise. It's why when I preach funerals and if the person that died died in the Lord, some of the most comforting words that I can provide to the family was, that this man or woman, this young man or this young woman, they did not walk their last steps here on this earth. They did not sing their last song. They did not take their last breath. But they will be able to do all of those things and more in the new heavens and in the new earth. Because we have this sure and certain hope. Christ, he is our hope in life and in death and in life after death. That he has put death to death. And regardless of our circumstances and settings in life, unless the Lord comes back, we will all die. But those who trust in Jesus, we can have confidence that as we approach death, that he has already conquered it. This is how Jesus, he wants to address the church at Smyrna. I am the one who was the first and the last. The one who died and the one who was raised. This is who I am. And he's writing this and he's telling this to them because they are brushing up against death left and right. What is Jesus saying? We pick up in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich when we get down to it. And I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but rather are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, verse 10, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil, he's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days, you will have tribulation. It's something that we saw last week, and it's something that we're going to see in every letter. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is he's directly addressing the church. He knows. I know. I know the tribulation. I know your poverty. I know what you're going through. And it was addressed to this church collectively, but they were made up of individuals. And by extension, we too know that leave with this, that he sees you, that he knows what you're going through, and that he cares deeply for you. 
He knows the poverty. He knows the tribulation. He knows the general trouble and the trials. He knows the slander. Oh, y'all. The words that are spoken against trying to cut other people down. Right here he's talking about from the local Jewish synagogue. And so, I mean, if we were to paint some historical context in that day and age with Smyrna, as they were under Roman rule, under Roman rule you had what was called the imperial cult. And it was basically where everybody under that nation had to give, pay homage, worship the king. Had to worship Caesar. Had to worship the ruler. And the Jews in that place were given an exception. They did not have to. And so they didn't want to create any confusion. Hey, those Christians, that's a sect. Like, you know, they were actually accused of incest because they referred to each other as brother and sister. They were accused of they were accused of cannibalism because they said they drank the body or drank the blood and ate the body in the Lord's Supper. They were accused of all these other things. There was slander trying to cut them down, trying to paint them in a negative light, even to the point where later on, Emperor Nero, when he was persecuted, there was a big fire. He blamed it on the Christians. And it's kind of an ironic twist. Because he said they started the fire, he impaled them on poles, lit them on fire. And that's where we get the term Roman candle. That as we're going through and as we look through all of these things, that they are being slandered, they are being cut down verbally and physically. That they are being assaulted from all sides right here. And because in that day and age as well, you had to be a part of a trade guild to be able to work. And these were also a part of the imperial cult. And it was Christians could not work. There was no way for them to be able to make money in these already well-worn paths. There was no way for them to be a part of the main economic streams. And so they couldn't get work. They couldn't get money. They were experiencing physical persecution, emotional persecution, verbal persecution. And they were experiencing economic persecution. But he knows, Jesus knows, and he wants them and us to know that there's a different kind of rich. There's a different kind of rich. He says, I see you in your poverty, but you're rich. In those parentheses. By worldly standards, I mean, yes, they were destitute. They were poverty stricken. Yes, by worldly accounts, they were poor. But Jesus says that you are actually rich. You're like, what? How can you say that? That they're rich. I mean, that's just like pouring some salt on a wound. They're looking at these people in the situation that they're in. But what Jesus is wanting to gift the church at Smyrna is the gift of perspective. He's wanting them to be able to see that when we are only looking on a horizontal plane, when we are only looking around and seeing what others have and what we do not, when we are only looking around and seeing the needs that are present and we are not looking at him as provider and we don't remember what has already been given to us, then yeah, we can become despondent. Yeah, we can become downcast. But when we look at like Hebrews 10, 34, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You were happy when people stole from you since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, where you hear Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lay up for yourself treasures not on earth but in heaven. Where moth or rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. That yes, from an earthly sense, you might not be very rich here in this life. But looking ahead, looking to where your treasure is, he is reminding them that yes, you are rich. You might be tempted to look around, but I want you to look ahead. I want you to see what is coming your way. And he wants them and us to know, he wants them to know that there's an enemy. Just being very real about it. When he says over here, and behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. 
You know, there's sometimes when we realize that things are normal, it helps us to see things more clearly. When we know that something, we just want to know, is this normal? Is this normal? That was something that I shouted a lot the very first night of Thomas's life. I was over in Macon, Georgia at the medical center. Becca had just been a warrior and delivered that boy. And we were in the room and we were trying to get some shut eye. And then all of a sudden, Thomas starts coughing. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> it was like <laughs> in a baby form, right? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, it's the first night of his life. I'm not going to be able to keep this tiny human alive. And so I'm just like, oh, Becca, she's over there too, but not freaking out near as much as I am. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, she still has drugs. And I'm over here and I didn't. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I turned him over. I look at, okay, his face isn't blue. You know, all this other kind of stuff. I'm looking, looking, looking. And then I was, okay, well, he kind of calmed down. I went back and, you know, laid on my little couch bed thing. And I was get back up again, and it was that way, back and forth, back and forth. And I didn't want to be like super high maintenance, but I was like, I also want my son to live. And so I called the nurse, uh, nurse, nurse, come here, please, come here, come here, come here. And I just, uh, it had been about 30 minutes of me not being able to sleep, me rolling over, me thinking, oh my gosh, like, I've got to get this boy some, is this normal? And she comes in, is this normal? Is this normal? And for her to lovingly look at me and be like, bro, you need to calm down. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is annoying. He's still just got some fluid in his lungs. It's very normal for him to have to be able to cough this out at this point. Try to get some sleep. Now, a lot of times when we know that something is normal, it helps us to be able to see things more clearly and then for us to be able to move forward. And so for us, we need to know that it is normal. We need to normalize the fact that there's an enemy. His name is the devil, and he wants to trip you up, lead you away, pull you away from Christ. It's the same thing that we talk, don't talk a lot about death. Sometimes we don't even talk a lot about the devil. And, you know, we kind of fall into a trap sometimes that C.S. Lewis, uh, that great 20th century theologian, author, uh, we actually at the bookstall, you know, have uh, screw tape letters, which is a great resource if you want to be able to pick up. But it's actually in the preface to the screw tape letters that he writes that we, in our day and age, then and now, we commit two errors when it comes to discussing the devil and demons. Either we pay no attention to him whatsoever, or we're convinced we're overly infatuated with it and we think everything is attributed to him. The first one is kind of like in the usual suspects kind of way, that movie, if y'all have seen that. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Kind of that thing, we don't pay any attention, demystified, none of that. Or the one that we are just so consumed in thinking that the devil is at every turn and behind every flicker of the light bulb, right? Almost like the upside down with stranger things. That everything is attributed to the devil. But what we, do, we don't need to go off into either one of those errors. But rather, we need to speak where the Bible speaks. We need to be silent where it's silent. But these are things that we do know about the enemy that is set up against you. Okay? This is what we know. That he is a murderer from the very beginning, John 8. That he is scheming, Ephesians chapter 6. That he is the one who accuses, he's the accuser, the Satan. He is the one who is bringing charges against us and is constantly bringing the highlight reel of sins or hurts or trauma before us. He is the one, 1 Peter 5 would say, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That there is an intensity, there's an intentionality, that there is a desire for destruction. And right here, Jesus says that the devil is actually throwing people into prison. But I mean, he's not doing it himself. 
The devil is using other people to carry about his work. Jesus says, I don't want you to be afraid. Don't, do not fear. What is happening is normal. There's an enemy, and he actually, through using other people, he is going to be throwing you into prison. We should not be scared of the devil. When I was younger, I was with, my parents were both musicians, played in the church band, and so I was up there at the church all the time, and I would go to this old church library, and someone just did not care whatever books were in there. It was awful. Like, you, you need to be mindful of the books that you read, like in a good, don't, don't read garbage books. And so, I mean, full of books of, like, people that had died and supposedly gone to heaven in an ambulance and came back and all that other kind of stuff, or people that had spent, like, 20 minutes in hell or something like that. And I was going through, and I was reading these books, and I still remember sitting in that 1970s pink recliner in the back converted nursery into this makeshift library reading that book with my hands trembling and my parents coming and finding me after music practice and me telling them on the car ride home that I did not want to go to hell I did not want to go to hell I did not want to go to hell and as we come that I was consumed with fear about the devil but that was not the whole picture. Yes, there is an enemy, but we do not want to be so fixated on him. We do not need to be scared of the devil because 1 John 4, 4 is true. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4, write it down, memorize it, tattoo it on yourself if you're that kind of person. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. Because you see, yes, the devil might be a murderer from the beginning, but we serve the one who is the giver of eternal life. Yes, the devil might be scheming, but we serve one who has been planning and preserving us every day of our lives. And yes, the devil might be a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour, but we serve the Lion of Judah, who is the greater lion that makes the other one look like a nice little kitty cat. That is, we serve the one who knows and who wants to be real with us about the fact that there's an enemy. And he wants that church and he wants us to know that persecution is normal and there is a limit. There's a limit. Because this is what he says. It is limited to 10 days. And people are like, well, is that 10, 24-hour periods? What are we talking about here? It is not just that this church in Smyrna, not just that the church in general, not that just us today, whenever we come upon a trial, whenever we get thrown into prison or some other equivalent, it's only going to last 10 days, 10-day sentence. Now, that's not what he's trying to say. But what he is trying to metaphorically get across to us is the fact that there is a limit. That it is a complete, but there will be a definite stop. This will not go on forever. We talked about last week that so much of Revelation is steeped in Old Testament Easter eggs, right? That we go through. And this right here is hearkening back to Daniel chapter 1. As Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, whole crew, they're over there. And they did not want to defile themselves with the king's food with his strong drink or with the meat of his table. And so they said, hey, for 10 days, let us eat just veggies and we'll see if we're better or not. That what he is doing is he is hearkening back to another time when God's people were in a foreign land that was consumed with idolatry and frivolity and just going and chasing after pleasure and how God's people were able to stand in the midst of it. And he is hearkening back and he's pulling it over here with a little wink of the eye. And he's saying it's going to be 10 days. That there is a defined period of time. It's not specific, but it's limited. It won't always be that we are in the midst of it right now. The Lord, he is sovereign 
And he is so sovereign that he can say that even in the midst of those ten days, even in the midst of the tribulation, even in the midst of the trial, he can say that we're blessed. Like he said it earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at this. He says in Matthew 5.11, in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That understand this. What can persecution look like? There are varying degrees of it. Because if you're like me, some of you are listening to this and you're like, like we're talking a lot about persecution, but like I don't really know if I've ever experienced that. Like I, I don't necessarily have economic threats coming against me. I haven't had anybody to try to come over here and to take my life from me in this way for following Jesus. But what are you talking? What can persecution look like? Well, Jesus, he outlines a few different ways for it right here. It can be verbal when others revile you. Literally translate when they throw it in your face. When it can be physical. I mean, it can be harassment. It can be abuse. It can be hazing. It can be attempts on your life. It can be social, it can be slander, there can be economic or social undertones. And so you might be saying, you might be having this question, like, am I experiencing persecution? It's the logical next question to be able to ask, like, am I experiencing persecution? And if I'm not, then what do I need to do? I mean, do I need to be, like, going and putting myself in the way of doing these kind of things? And I I would just want to encourage us with this. We don't pursue persecution. We pursue Jesus. We don't pursue persecution. We pursue Jesus. And in pursuing Jesus, it inevitably leads to persecution. I'll say it this way. The more that we follow, the more that we seek to be faithful, the more that we attempt to serve publicly Christ, the more that will come into conflict with the world around us. And the trajectory that the world is on and the drift and the way that things have been and will continue to go will lead it on a collision course where we will be persecuted. And so, no, I mean, maybe it's not going to be an attempt on your life. It might be that you are not considered for certain jobs or that you are released from some in the future. It's in those moments that you have to decide before you get in that moment beforehand. You've got to decide, okay, what is ultimate right here? How will I pursue the Lord through this vocation and when the moment comes for me to be able to stand for what I know is right or just to pass off and just kind of go with what the boss man says? It might not be taken on your life. It might, not, it might be economic, but let's bring it home to right here, right now. It means that you might be excluded from certain friend groups. It might mean that that other significant other does not pursue a relationship with you. Or ends one. It might be that you are not invited to that party. Or you might be not included in that group text. That there will be times when you are left out. That you are excluded. And you don't go into those parties on those trips. Invited to those hangouts, etc. That it's not just persecution that's over there. It's persecution that's over here. And those kinds of things. It might be from your own family. That you experience those kinds of things. That as we bear the reproach of Christ... That as we seek to be a light, and when the light bucks up against the darkness, that's when the darkness loves to lash out. When those things that have been previously hidden are now exposed, that's when we start to see the gnarly things happen. That's when we start to see the pain. But know this, that it's not just what you feel or what you experience as an individual. Because remember, this... These letters weren't written to individuals. They were written to groups of churches and they were all meant to read each other's mail and by extension it is a word for us. We need to recover a greater sense of the global body of Christ. 
Because it's one of those things, there's a guy named Nick Ripkin. He wrote a book called The Insanity of God. He's a retired International Mission Board missionary, the Southern Baptist International Missions. And this is what he said in his book, Insanity of God. A believer in Bulgaria told me, if I represent a small finger of the body of Christ, and I'm being cut off from persecution, and the rest of the body doesn't feel that pain, then either you are saying to me that I don't belong to the body of Christ, or you are saying that you yourself don't belong to the body of Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ globally. And we should pray for our brothers and sisters around the world in such a way that when they are attacked, that we feel it too. That we are individually followers of Christ and we have been given local bodies to be a part of, greater regions and nations where our churches are, but we are also connected across country lines. And when one part suffers, all of us suffer. We are united in Christ. It's one of those things why when the Apostle Paul, when he was knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, when he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus, he said, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting the church, but Jesus so identified with his people that he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That we as a part of the global body of Christ are experiencing persecution. That we hear more and more as we seek to live out our faith for Christ. We will experience it more and more. My wife has been experiencing it with previous friendships and not being included in certain things. Like we are experiencing this more and more as we continue to diverge from the course of this world. We might seem like we are losing out or we are, we're being shortchanged, but far from it. We look and continue on in verse 10 and 11. How can we respond? This is what Jesus says. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus is looking at them. Says, don't give up. Don't abandon ship. Don't quit. Keep pressing on. Be faithful, even unto death. And because Jesus, he was faithful unto death. And we now who follow him, we who take up our cross daily and follow him, that we who have died to self and who now live to him that is pictured in baptism, that we have died to sin and self and we are now living a life to Christ, that we now can follow him and being faithful unto death. And we can look ahead for there is a reward. We can look ahead. We see this in James chapter 1, talking about this crown of life. This is what James says, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. A sign of victory. A sign of royalty. How much this would contrast with what the church at Smyrna was experiencing at the time. The ridicule, the ostr- being ostracized 
economically at the bottom of the ladder, but they, if they conquered, remained steadfast, they would be given the crown of life, enduring in Jesus, resting safe in Jesus, that will shield them from the second death. You're like, well, what is the second death? My goodness. If we were to look ahead in Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20, and in chapter 21, we see that the second death is where the devil, his demons, and death itself is thrown into the lake of fire, along with all of those who are apart from Christ. That the offer is on the table, eternal life in Christ and with God, or eternal dying apart from him, and on our own terms. To those who would conquer in the conquering king, there will be safety and reward, even though there is pain and death in this life. I was reminded in preparation of an early church father named Polycarp. I know it kind of, a, it kind of sounds like a Pokemon or something like that, but his name was Polycarp. And Polycarp, he had some really close connections with what we were reading tonight. You see a picture of him up on the screen, a rendering of him. Because Polycarp, he was a part of that first generation. The apostles, Jesus' 12 disciples, they ministered in various places. The apostle John appointed him to be pastor. The same John that wrote the book of Revelation, he appointed Polycarp to be the pastor of the church at Smyrna, the place where this letter was written to. And as Polycarp, as he was serving there, he had been following Christ for a long time. As the Roman government continued to get more and more strict and coming down more and more hard on the church there, that as he was there, it was on February 2nd, the year 156. It was, he was, Polycarp was ordered by the Roman proconsul to swear by the genius of Caesar and to revile Christ, to disown Jesus. And he refused. And he said, I have served Christ for 86 years. And he added this, How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was burned at the stake and impaled with a sword. Right there. And it sounds tragic. But for Polycarp and for those who trust in Jesus, we have a different perspective. That in Christ, death is dead. Death does not have the final word. That we have a hope that extends beyond this life and looks into the one to come. In Christ, death is dead. And in Christ, the devil's work is undone. That God's purposes are the ones that will ultimately stand. And in Christ, there is a reward, eternal life. Not just on this perpetual golf course with a long buffet line and no cancer. Eternal life with the Lord of all creation. The one who made you and who knows you and has saved you to bring you back to himself. Do you have this? This is not just something for you to... Through these years, sowing your wild oats, going about doing everything, and later on in your life, maybe when you want to settle down with kids, go around, get into church, or maybe you'll be able to kind of skirt in a little bit on your deathbed before. It's not, I mean, yeah, Jesus was able to look to the thief at the side of the cross and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's absolutely true. 
But I don't want you to think you're operating from a false mentality. You don't have to get in all of the good times and all of the pleasure and then one day go to Jesus. Now you would be missing out on eternal life that's not just for somewhere down the road, but eternal life that begins here and now. Eternal life and the knowledge and the fellowship of the one who made you and who saved you. This is available to you. Paul would write in Romans that if anybody confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they are saved. Saved from what? Saved from death. Not necessarily dying this first time, but the ultimate death, the second death. They are saved in Christ. That they are saved from themselves and constantly having to collapse back in on yourself. And you are saved for good works. Not so that you can earn, but so that you can express, so that you can enjoy fellowship and love and service for God and for your neighbor. That you can be free of yourself. And you can find Christ. This is available. This was available to the church at Smyrna. This is available for you here today. And what I would encourage you to do, if you don't know this, if you don't have this and you want it, come talk to me. Come talk to your friend that brought you here. If you just came tonight on your own, find somebody that you know that follows Jesus that you can, share, you can say, hey, I want this. I'm tired of going down these same paths. I'm tired of going down this same dead-end sin way of living. And I need something different. I can't fix this. I need Jesus. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Because eternal life is something not just for the further down the road, but it's something that you can experience right now. Because we will experience persecution in this life. And as we pursue Jesus, we don't look just to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. We look to the things that are eternal. We can approach death in one and with one who has gone before us. He's gone first and he's come through on the other side. And he has assured us, just as I rose again, so too will you. Death, it does not have the final word. That we can know that persecution that we experience here now, it is normal and it is limited. There's a hard cap on how much of it that we will experience. He gives us perspective. And we can know that there is a reward. Life with God himself forever. It's the only reason we're able to sing things like we've already sung. And to the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives. Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. We follow the one who the darkness wants nothing of, can pose no threat, and can only do so little. But the light and the life and the love that he offers today is for everyone. It's for you and it's for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you know us, that you see us, that you don't leave us without a word. In those times that feel the hardest, in the times that feel chaotic, but God, even in the times where we feel like we're doing everything right, where we're being a witness, where we're trying to live faithfully, as we're trying to share about you and the work that you've done in our lives and people aren't responding, and it's not just that they're not responding, people are responding, but with hatred and with derision, God, we look to you. We pray for boldness. We pray for strength. We pray for courage, even into the grave. And God, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. 
for those for whom it would cost a great deal to come to a gathering like this or even just to gather in a household with other people and to share slices of a Bible and pass it around and read it under lamplight. God, we pray for them, that you would embolden them, God, that you would work through them, that the gospel seed would spread very widely and that as government regimes, as local rulers, as family members would seek to snuff it out or to throw a cold bucket of water on it, God, that it would just fan into greater flame and that it would spread even further out. God, give them boldness even into death and help us to remember to pray for them, our brothers and sisters. God, we look forward to the day where death is done away with finally and completely. Where the enemy and all those who would seek to do his work would be gone and we would be with you in unfettered access forever. We look forward to that day and with that vision, with that hope, compel us. Would it constrain us? Would it move us forward? Would it help us to stand here and now? We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.